And let me read Psalm 3. And then I'll hand over to James. So this is a Psalm of David. David says this, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Would you like to give a very warm welcome to James White? I'm going to pray for James. Uh, Lord God, thank you for this man. Uh, Thank you for his love of you. Uh, Thank you more supremely that you love him and that you have prepared him for this evening. And we pray, Lord God, that you would work uh, through him to be a blessing to all of us. We pray you fill him with your spirit and that you would guide him as he speaks to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You, Jago? Can people hear me? Yes. Uh, Great. Now, I love our country for lots of reasons, uh, but one of the things I love most about us Brits is our approach to emotion. For those of you who, like me, spend far too much time on Twitter, you might have heard of the account Very British Problems, which I quote, chronicles the oddball behaviours and the cultural quirks that make life awkward for us British people one rainy day at a time. For those of you who aren't originally from the UK, you've probably picked up a lot of these odd quirks already, but uh, if you do want to be educated further, I'll definitely recommend this Twitter account. Uh, And Very British Problems loves to point out the bizarre way that we approach our emotions. Put simply, understatement is key. I've got a few examples uh, that are going to come up on the screen. Here's the first one. Here's Very British Problems summarizing how you should say your meal is bad. It's certainly different. Not what I expected. This next one, this is definitely the one we use in our, in our family. My dad, who's in the audience, if he has a bad meal, he always says, yours looks nice. I've had better, I've had worse. They mean the same thing. I wouldn't have it again. Or finally, that classic, mmm, mmm. Lots of different ways you can pronounce that. Uh, on to the next slide. This is ways to respond to complete disaster. Well, that's no good. Oh, dear. It's hardly ideal. Not to worry. It's fine, could be worse. As amusing as all these are, I'm afraid that this approach is nothing at all like the Psalms. It's the complete opposite. The Psalms are full of emotion. So much for Christianity being formal, closed, stiff upper lip. No, the Psalms are wonderfully, terrifyingly, shockingly emotive. Take verse 7. Imagine if uh, after this talk, Ella walks up with the rest of the bands to the stage. Ella raises her arms, eyes to the ceiling, starts singing, strike all my enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. Even the most emotional person here might probably have a word with Ella and say, all right, maybe we should calm it down a bit. But David is far too honest for that. The Psalms are far too honest for that. Because the Psalms offer us 
a fresh approach to tackling our emotions. We shouldn't just deny our emotions. We shouldn't just stuff them away. Nor should we just express them, regardless of what they might be. No, the Psalms tell us to pray them, contemplate them through prayer, through intimate discussion with God. And we're going to look at Psalm 3 tonight to see how that might work in practice. Uh, And the emotion that Psalm 3 focuses on, in particular, is fear. I'm an economist, so I obviously had to do some data analysis before giving this talk. It's critical. Uh, And to my delight, I found that the Office for National Statistics has a data series on anxiety. They go around the country and ask people in different regions uh, how anxious they are on a scale of 1 to 10. Now, where do you think in the UK the most anxious region might be? Maybe it's the most economically deprived or the the most rural, uh, the most remote from anywhere else. In fact, the most anxious part of the UK is right here. It's in London. The wealthiest, got the most economic opportunities, but it's the most anxious. I've experienced that in my life and seen it in the lives of many of my friends here in London. Even the people who you think might, on the outside, have it everything. They've got the the nice flat, the high disposable income, the popularity, all those Instagram photos of avocados. (laughs) Even those people, under the surface, often experience deep anxiety. My wife, Lucy, and I have had the joy of leading a connect group over the last year, but we've been amazed just how many times anxieties come up in the conversations and in the prayers that we've had. And yet, what's the most frequent command in the Bible? Do not fear. Do not fear. So we should think hard about how we can have a right and godly approach to fear and anxiety. But before we go into the passage, I want to quickly distinguish between two different types of fear. Firstly, we can have healthy fears. In Psalm 3, David has quite a healthy fear. Tens of thousands of people are trying to attack him. This sort of fear is good. It creates adrenaline. It helps him flee. It stops him getting killed. Or to take a more mundane example that you might be a bit more used to, having a healthy fear of traffic ensures that when we cross the road, we cross the road safely and we don't get hit. Although, admittedly, my level of fear is so much lower than my wife's that I often leave her waiting in some London borough, waiting for the green man while I've strode across and uh, somewhere else. But there's a second type of fear. There's unhealthy fear. Some of these might be simply uh, irrational or quite weird. Lots of us have very odd fears as we grow up. My sister suffered from uh, pogonophobia. Anyone know what that is? Thought not. Uh, It's a fear of beards, of course. Um, I had a fear. It was even weirder than that. Um, I had a jurassicophobia. Yeah, there's even a word for that too. Um, I had a fear of growing. I, I was convinced that if I grew my head would fall off. <laughs> but I'm happy to say that my head is still in place, um, and I'm, I'm less fearful of growing these days, which is very good. Uh, but unhealthy fears can be far more serious as well. Let's take the crossing the road example. Imagine a car speeds past you, narrowly misses you, but suppose that after that immediate shock fades away, you're left with some ongoing worry, some vulnerability some sense of anxiety about getting hit. Suppose this stops you even wanting to leave the house. That's an unhealthy fear. It's not productive. It's destructive. 
It stops us living our lives to the full. It stops us taking risks. It stops us feeling free. And over time, if this keeps happening, we're left feeling empty and vulnerable and maybe even worthless. So, to this psalm, what type of fear does David have? Well, as I've said, some of it is healthy. But let's look at what it says in verse 2. Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. This isn't just healthy fear about his physical safety. David has a deeper, unhealthy anxiety about what he really cares about, his reputation, his status, about what people are saying of him, what people are thinking of him. We'll never fully understand this until we know the context of this psalm a bit more. At this point, David is the king of Israel, uh, and the Israelites um, believed that their king was appointed by God. But this also meant that they believed that if God lost favor with the king, then the king would be dethroned. And that's what happened to Saul, who was uh, David's predecessor. So when people are saying, God will not deliver David, they're saying God has given up on him and that David doesn't deserve to be king. Everything about David, his royal status, his position before God, his popularity, everything is being challenged. And that leads David to experience anxiety, a deep anxiety, an ongoing anxiety. Now, I don't think any of us here are rulers of a small Middle Eastern nation, unfortunately. But I think that some of the anxiety we might experience here in Clapham is similar. People come here because they want to make it. They want to be recognized, to be successful, and that puts pressure on us. It can trigger worry. It makes me worried. What if I'm not successful? What if I'm not recognized, not valued? What if my career or my relationship doesn't go as planned? And so what's the natural consequence? We're anxious. So how do we overcome this? Well, look at how David starts verse 3. But you, Lord. But you, Lord. That's the key. Everything, all of our solution flows from focusing on God. And there are three main characteristics of God that David draws on in this psalm, which we're going to look at for the rest of this talk. So you might want to jot them down on the back of your service sheets if you're making notes. And the first one of these is, God is my shield. Verse 3 says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. God is our shield. But he's not just any shield. He's not a shield beside me. He's not a shield in front of me. He's a shield around me. This is not any type of shield. It's a shield for a specific purpose. What might that be? Well, for those of you who remember primary school history, uh, you might recognize something that's going to come up on the, on the... Oh, it already has come up on the screen. This is a Roman tortoise shield. This is a shield around you. This might seem like a lovely, cuddly sort of image. God's all around us. He's, he's, he's surrounding us. And it is comforting. But let's remember what this sort of shield is used for. This isn't just for a Roman who's, who's popping out to Tesco or wants to go out to Inferno's and just has it in case you know, he gets into a scrap with someone. No, this shield is used when you're going headfirst into battle, into a situation where you're certain you will be attacked. So what does this say about our fears? Put simply, the Christian life's not an easy life. It's not a comfortable option. So it's not that we should stop fearing because we know that life will be easy. No, we are fearless in spite of what we know we will suffer. 
because we know that God is with us in every single moment. This message is repeated throughout the Bible. What does Psalm 23 say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. What about Revelation 2? Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Or in John, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. Suffering's not optional for the Christian. It's a key part of it. But we need not fear, we should not fear, because we know that even in the midst of the most difficult moments of our life, God is with us. He is always surrounding us. He protects us. The Bible is full of great followers of God who get this. They take huge risks, and yet at the same time, they are so confident of being safe in God's hands because they know that their Lord is their shield around them. Think of Daniel in the lion's den. Think of James and John who leave everything, everything to follow Jesus. Think of Paul and Silas locked up in prison, worshipping God. Can I challenge us as a church? Imagine if we could emulate that. Imagine if we could emulate that attitude, taking huge risks because we know we are safe and surrounded by God. Imagine how exciting our life would be. Imagine how liberating it would be for everything, for your job, for your relationships, for the way you spend money. No need to fear, because we know God is with us. But therefore, no need to be hesitant about entering the most challenging situations. No need to be hesitant about laying down our lives for him. So David's first response is that God is his shield around him. But if that is all David said, then actually the conclusion's not that great. It's just, just keep going, just be stoic, just grin and bear life. It's going to be tough, but God is your shield, and then, you know, if you persevere, you might receive a reward further down the line. It's not that appealing. But there's more. There's a deeper message in this psalm, which leads us on to my second point. God is my glory. The second half of verse 3 reads, God is my glory, the one who lifts my head high. In the Bible, glory literally means your significance, your value, your worth. So when David's saying here, God is my glory, he is saying that ultimately his worth is found in God, not in anything else. I know our temptation is always to put our worth in that something else, in our job, our popularity, our relationship status, our appearance, our property, our moral performance. Our instinct is always to make one of those things the thing that really defines us, the thing that gives us value, that gives us worth. Now, these are all good things, but they're not our glory. They were never designed to be the source of our ultimate worth. And if they do ever become our glory, then what's the result? We become fearful. Why? Because none of these things, whatever they are, can really provide the permanence, the security, and the ultimate satisfaction that we need. Think about it. Our job, our financial security could disappear tomorrow for so many reasons. Our relationship could fall apart. Our friends could abandon us. Our reputation could be destroyed. Our health could deteriorate. So if we place our ultimate worth and value in any of these things, it's natural, it's even logical, for us to begin to fear. We have no certainty. 
And slowly, if we let that continue, it eats away at us. So here's David's solution. Don't make any of those other things your glory. They were never meant to be your glory. Make God your glory. Allow God to be the primary determinant of your worth and of your value. Let God be the lifter of your head, nothing else. Allow God and God's view of you and his love for you to be all that you need. He is the only thing that can truly satisfy. He's the only person that can give you that unconditional love that you need, that you need to be freed from fear. He is the one whose perfect love can cast out fear. Let's give a very simple example. Um, Football fans among you will have heard of Raheem Sterling, who is a talented young English winger. Uh, Two years ago, Raheem Sterling was sold, aged 19, to Manchester City for £49 million. When I was 19, my greatest achievement was I won a free kebab in a raffle. Makes me very depressed. But in the following year, uh, after the move, he he struggled for form quite a lot. Uh, He didn't score as many goals as people were thinking, and there were quite big question marks around his role and uh, how he was doing, whether he had a future there. Then last summer, Manchester City uh, brought in a new manager from Barcelona called Pep Guardiola, and there was a lot of fanfare around his arrival. He was supposed to be one of the best managers in the world. And immediately, from match one, after his arrival, Raheem Sterling started playing brilliantly. Amazingly, complete contrast from before. So naturally, lots of the press were saying, what's he, what's he done? What's Pep Guardiola brought in? What's uh, the new technique that he's taught Raheem Sterling to help him uh, become so much better? So they asked him in a press conference. And this is what Raheem said. All he told me was to keep my head up, not to worry. He says he knows I'm a very good player and a major part of his plans for Manchester City. That's it. No special technique, no new approach. All the manager did was tell Raheem that he had faith in him. And that was enough. That was enough to free him from fear. In such a bigger way, if we allow God's love for us to be our glory, our ultimate source of worth, we too can be freed from fear. Keep your head up, God says. Not to worry. You're my perfect child. You're loved. And you're a major part of my plans. Now, it can be tough to make God our glory. It means letting go of all those other things that that were pulling at us, that we've been striving for all this time. But those other gods only ever offered temporary pleasure. Instead, focus on the permanent love of God, the unchanging, unconditional worth he has ascribed to you. It is so much more important and significant than any of your fears. And it is the only way that you can know everlasting, deep joy. But how do we know? How do I know that God's view of me really is permanent and unchanging? How do I know he loves me? Haven't you seen my life, you might say? The brokenness, the messiness, my vulnerabilities, my anxieties that I hide away on a Sunday. Does God really love me? 
Is he really my glory? Does he really lift my head high? Me? That brings us on to my final point. God is my deliverer. In verse 4, David writes, God answers me from his holy mountain. Now, the holy mountain here refers to Zion, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was in the Old Testament. Um, It's where God's presence was said to have dwelt, and it's also the place where God made his promises to the Israelite nation that he would be with them. So David was looking back and trusting in the promises that God had made. But I also think, even if he didn't know it, David was pointing forwards. He was pointing forwards to the most important moment in the history of the earth. Because we know that there's another holy mountain where God brought deliverance. It wasn't a grand mountain, it was a small plain hill. It was on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It was called Golgotha. And it was the place where Jesus was crucified. Before Jesus went to the garden of uh, before Jesus went to the cross, he went to the garden of Gethsemane. And he begged with his father not to go to death. He was terrified. He sweat blood with fear. He experienced the anxiety that you and I experience, and so much more. On the cross, Jesus cried out to his father, Why have you forsaken me? He heard no answer. He bowed his head, and he died. And it's only because of this, only because of this sacrifice, that we can read Psalm 3 and declare everything that David says with complete confidence. On the cross, Jesus took all the mess and all the brokenness of your life, and it was on him, so that you could be made perfect, so that you can proclaim, verse 8, his blessing falls on you. He bowed his head on the cross so that your head could be lifted, verse 3. He was separated from his Father in heaven so that you can have an intimate relationship with him, so that you can call out to God and you know that he will answer you, verse 4. He gave up all his glory on the cross so that he can now be your glory, verse 3. And because he rose again, we can have complete confidence that when we die, we will wake again. He will sustain us, verse 5. No need to fear. That's the gospel. That's grace. This is Jesus' beautiful exchange. On the cross, he took the shame and the punishment that our messy lives deserve, and he exchanged it for a perfect record. Whom then shall I fear? No need to fear not being good enough, or successful enough, or worthy enough. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your actions, even regardless of whether you're feeling anxious or not. You're viewed as glorious. That is the permanent love that no one but Jesus can offer. That is the perfect love that casts out fear. David had so many reasons to fear in human terms. He had an affair with Bathsheba, and then he arranged for Bathsheba's husband to be killed in battle to cover it up. We too have reasons to fear, We're humans. We're messy. We're broken. We live in a difficult world that we don't control and that impacts us. We're a tiny cog. And yet, because of the cross, you and I can say with full confidence 
God is my glory. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Have you let that sink into your heart? Have you let that dispel your fears about the future, about your job, about your relationships? In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. But take heart. Do not be afraid. For I have overcome the world. Amen. Uh, If the band would like to um, get up and start playing in a moment. I said at the start that the Psalms offer a new approach to our emotions by praying our emotions. Now, can I encourage all of us here, regardless of who you are, to now try and put that into action. Try and pray for your emotions. Whether it's where you're seated, whether it's up at the front, uh, where the ministry team will be, and they'll be uh, happy to pray with you about anything. Can I encourage you to try and be honest with God? Pray through these worries that you might have. Wrestle with God. If you sit here tonight as a follower of Jesus, can I encourage you, pray through the fears you have. Ask that it will become more real to you that God is your glory. And if, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, can I encourage you to be really bold as well and to try and pray? We all will be, so you won't be the only one. But pray through your worries and your anxieties that you have as well. And ask that God might reveal to you a bit of that love that we've been singing about and talking about. So let's be honest as a church now with God and respond to him personally.